Welcome back to the At The Yard podcast. I'm your host, Les Lukacs. Very, very special guest today. As a young man coming up in San Diego, you turned on the radio, and this gentleman was the voice that you wanted to hear, especially when it came to high school sports. I'm joined by by none other than the coach, John Cantera. Coach, thank you so much for making time to hop on the podcast and just chat a little bit about your past and, and San Diego as a whole. Uh, Les, uh, thanks so much for having me. Really looking forward to this. We'll have a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. So, Coach, let, let's start with your high school days. Uh, you know, three sports st- uh, athlete there at, at Torrey Pines High School and, uh, you know, football, basketball, baseball. You, you end up going on to play collegiately uh, basketball uh, there at USIU, which I believe is now San Diego Christian College, if I'm not mistaken. Um, before an, an injury kind of forced you to walk away from the game. But take us through what it meant to play at a, at a school like Torrey Pines. Obviously, a lot of athletes have come through there, uh, yourself included. Uh, what was the competition like, you know, being kind of the big dogs there in the North County? Well, what it was, uh, Les, uh, you know, we weren't the big dogs uh, back when I played there. We, uh, I had played uh, my sophomore year at San Diego High School, and then Torrey Pines opened up the 73-74 school year uh, and that was uh, the first year we had football. It was uh, the start of the 73-74 school year. Played on that first football team. Uh, I had not played a lot of football uh, prior to that and ended up really enjoying it a great deal. Uh, and then we went into basketball and baseball. And we had no seniors my first year. So uh, we took our lumps in basketball and in baseball. And then uh, my senior year, I had had some knee surgery at the end of my junior year in baseball, and I chose not to play football. And there's there sometimes I kind of look back and regret that because I think maybe that would have been my best sport going forward. But I'd had such a great uh, year in uh, basketball my junior year. I was fifth in the county in scoring and led the Coast League in scoring. And uh, things were really you know, kind of headed in that direction basketball-wise. So uh, I played basketball and baseball my senior year, uh, finished uh, eighth in scoring my uh, senior year. And I made uh, one of the all-CIF teams in baseball. And we had a really good run my senior year in baseball. Uh, we had to uh, play a play-in game to get in. We had to play Oceanside High, and we beat Lee Guterman at Oceanside, who uh, was uh, uh, ended up pitching in the big leagues uh, for a number of years. Beat him, and then we in those days you didn't have all these different divisions you have now. You had the big school division, and you had the small school division, and the big school division it was one through sixteen. Well, we got in as number sixteen, and we played Ernie Beck and the Claremont Chieftains, and they had the CIF player of the year that year, Tim uh, Muser, and we went down. I had a great ball game that day. Uh, our team had a great ball game, and we beat them 3-1. to one. So I had a single, double, and triple off of Timmy that day, and we were fortunate enough to win. Uh, then we went to uh, play Patrick Henry at Cunningham Stadium, which is now Fowler Park. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is a great run for the Falcons. You know, we're a uh, second-year school. Craig Scoggins is our head coach. And I uh, went down there, and, and Patrick Henry, uh, uh, they had a really good team. And, and we uh, beat them. I think it was 14-3. to I had a single, double, triple, and a walk in that game. And uh, everything was going well until we had a day off. And, unfortunately, Coach Scoggins is uh, – 
one of his uh, parents had passed away, and we didn't have practice, and we played the following day down at Mesa College, and Curtis Burkhead, who was a great pitcher uh, out of Crawford High, went on and had a great career pitching for the Aztecs, uh, beat us that day. I went 0 for 3, but I was one of the only guys in the lineup that didn't strike out. But we had a great run my senior year, uh, considering we were only a second-year school. We got beat by Crawford, and uh, Crawford ended up getting beat by Madison, who had beaten Alan Trammell and the Kearney Comets in their semifinal. So, and Madison had a loaded team that year. With uh, I could go up and down their roster. They had a lot of great players. But, uh, yeah, baseball my senior year got really fun when it came playoff time. Let me, so let me ask you this. At that point, were you did you already know you were going to go on to play basketball, or was the potential of playing baseball beyond high school still an option? Oh, no, it was definitely an option. I knew I'd been recruited by Palomar. I'd been recruited by uh, Coach Sandbeck and, and Coach Mobile Hall, the basketball coach at uh, San Diego Mesa, Miracosta College, Skip Inger, their basketball coach and baseball coach John Seeley were recruiting me. Uh, Point Loma College was recruiting me. I didn't. I only had one offer coming out of high school. I mean, it was a lot different back in that day. Schools didn't have as many scholarships available. And you know, to be honest with you, I wasn't ready to go to a four-year school athletically or probably academically. I mean, I wasn't a bad student in high school. I was about a you know close to a three zero. Uh, but, you know, most of my emphasis, uh, being honest, was I wanted to be an athlete. And Miracosta, I knew if I went to Miracosta, I could play both sports. And I was one of those guys, I could never make a determination on what I wanted to do. I was a good basketball player, but baseball was always my first love. I was a big guy, but I didn't hit with a lot of power as a line drive guy. Uh, who didn't strike out much. You normally hit cleanup on the team, but wouldn't hit too many home runs. I'd hit a few doubles, but you know, I was just a good RBI guy. So uh, I chose to go to Miracosta, and I had two wonderful years there playing both ba- uh, baseball and basketball. And then you, you head over to USIU uh, after that, and, and you know, take, walk us through kind of that transition, uh, if you will, and, and then you know, it coming kind of a, to a sudden end, if you will. Yeah, Les, you know, uh, when I was coming out of junior college, I mentioned I had one scholarship. It was uh, Coach Foster, who's a great guy, by the way. Uh, Ben Foster, his son now is the uh, head basketball coach out of Cal State San Marcos, B.J. Foster. And there's a lot of times I look back and thought maybe I should have went and played for him because he was a marvelous man. And Carol Land at that time uh, was the baseball coach and a a marvelous human being who uh, we just lost here a few weeks back. but when I was coming out of Miracosta, I, uh, I was a real good shooter, and, uh, but I changed my game. I was a shooter in high school, and I was a shooter in junior college, but I learned how to play with my back to the basket, and I, I learned how to rebound. And I, I was a completely different player uh, two years after getting out of high school. I just was a, my game had kind of uh, been transformed. I, I learned how to rebound. I learned how to play down in the low post because I was – uh, even though I was a big guy in high school, I was I could really shoot. And I, I look back, I wish they had the three-pointer back when I was in high school. <laughs> uh, my average would have been even higher than it was. But uh, I wanted to, to play. And both uh, the basketball coach and the baseball coach 
uh, agreed that I, I could play both. And at that time, Miracosta had a good basketball program. The baseball program was outstanding. I mean, John Seeley was the head coach. Uh, uh, he was off the chart. I mean, Doc Edwards, who went on and managed in the big leagues and played in the big leagues, played for him. Uh, Kevin Towers eventually played for him after I got done. Chris Chambliss had played for him. Uh, Ray Smith, who got uh, some time in the big leagues and has managed in the Twins organization for years, uh, had played for Coach Seeley. So I knew if I went there and I could make the team. And he told me this coming out of Torrey Pines. He goes, John, if you come and make my team, I'll find a school for you that you can play at and get your college degree. Well, you know, when I came out less, uh, I was a, my, my sophomore year at Miracosta, I was voted the athlete of the year in the college, which to this day is probably as great honor as I could have been given because there were so many great athletes at Miracosta uh, while I was there and before I was there that had won that award. And I, you know, I'm really honored to have won that award, but I had 35 different scholarship offers coming out of junior college from when two years earlier I had one and, and they were in mix. They were a uh, baseball, uh, basketball, and when I chose USIU, really a couple of reasons I chose a USIU. And by the way, it's Alliant University. Oh, Alliant. Um, <laughs> Got it. Out there in Scripps Ranch. The r real reason I, I chose, a couple of reasons. Number one, it was always important for me to have my mom and dad in the stands. They were great supporters of mine. They came and, you know, they never complained about, well, you're not getting enough playing time or uh, your coach isn't doing this, the coach isn't doing They sat and they supported their son. And when I would go home at night after a game, you know, good game, bad game, average game, I was never criticized. You should have done this or you should have done that. My parents were so supportive, and I knew how much it meant for them to be in the stands. So that came into the decision. And when I went on my recruiting trip, I took my mom and dad uh, down, and Coach McDonald, who was a basketball coach who was recruiting me, uh, we had a nice talk, and then we met with the athletic director, uh, a gentleman by the name of Al Pomiato, who was an unbelievably great man. Um, and I chose to go there that reason, but they also told me I could play both sports and the other schools wanted me to play one or the other. So they were going to give me the opportunity to play both basketball and baseball, even though I'd be on a basketball uh, scholarship and then I'd go out and uh, I was going to play for Bob Vetter. Uh, and Bob went on, had a great career. And we know Bob just passed away here uh, in the last week. Uh, I would have played for him. So I go to USIU. Uh, and I'm going to back up in a minute. I'm going to tell you how I got recruited by USIU. But I went there my junior year, and I tore my uh, patella tendon in my left knee. And I continued to play. I, I did some. I took some shots to kill the pain, and I finished the year. And went out for baseball, and just couldn't do it. And that's how I ended up getting into to uh, coaching uh, that spring when I couldn't play baseball. I started coaching with Craig Scoggins and a guy named Larry Watts up at uh, Torrey Pines, and that got my coaching career going. But I got to go back and tell you a funny story about how I got recruited to USIU. USIU was not even on the radar. Uh, and we were going to play their JV team up at Miracosta. And one of my best friends from high school, a guy by the name of Rick Winnett, uh, goes into Coach McDonald's office. Uh, a few days before we're going to play this game, he goes, yeah, I'm going up to watch my buddy play against you guys on Wednesday night. And Coach McDonald at that time, you know, he he, he doesn't know who I am. And, you know, <laughs> here's this golfer on the golf team at USIU coming into his office and talking about me. And, you know, he, he kind of, you know, he listened and said, you know, about time you get out of my office, son. And so uh, a couple nights later, you know, we're playing USIU and we blew him off the court. I went for 20 points and 16 rebounds. I was 10 of 13 shooting. So a couple of days after the game, my buddy 
uh, Rick goes into Coach McDonald's office again and said, hey, I went to the game the other night. My buddy had a pretty good game. He goes, what number was your buddy? He goes, number 52. He goes, hey, do you have that guy's phone number? And that's how I got recruited by USIU. Wow. Wow. A <laughs> little, little different than today, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so, no, so, it is. But, uh, you know, Coach Seeley and Coach Anger at Miracosta, they were unbelievable. Coach Seeley uh, uh, was the guy that really pounded the pavement to get uh, not only me, but a lot of my teammates' scholarship offers. And uh, a lot of us were able to go on and, and get an education where it didn't cost our mom and dad a whole lot of money. Yeah. And, and you talked about how the after the injury there in the spring, you started coaching at Torrey Pines. And I'm curious, did, did you have an inkling that maybe coaching was in your future? Did you feel passionate about coaching? Uh, or is it something that just kind of fell in your lap? Les, I knew when I was a young boy, I wanted to be involved in sports. Uh, and even in Little League, you know, I was a catcher in Little League. And when I was 10, 11, 12 years old, I used to uh, when I'd catch, I'd look at where the batter was standing on the plate. Was he in on the plate? Was he off on the plate? Was he back in the box? Was he in the front of the box? Uh, you know, what kind of swing did he have? What, uh, you know, how should I try to set this guy up? And and so I knew at a young age I wanted to coach, and I wanted to coach baseball. Tell you another story uh, that's kind of funny. Uh, I mentioned that game where we played Patrick Henry out at, at then Cunningham Stadium, which is now Fowler Park. Uh, and when I hit that double, we had a big lead. And I took a timeout. I called timeout, and I brought Coach Scoggins out. And, you know, I was a big guy and didn't run well. Uh, you know, I wasn't a speedster by any stretch of the imagination. Mm -hmm. And so I called Coach Scoggins out, and I said, you know, Coach, I go, I know we got a lead, but this might be a good opportunity to put a pinch runner in for me, uh, you know, somebody a little bit quicker that we can score here with two outs and uh, me on second base. So, you know, even in high school, I, I took myself out of a ball game to try to help the ball club. And, you know, I was even coaching when I was a senior in high school. Yeah, that, that, that's awesome. Let, let's jump into that coaching career because you go from, you know, playing uh, at USIU, you, you coach, as you mentioned, Torrey Pines, you, you go back to Mir Miracosta College, you even spent some time at Southwestern College, mm -hmm. uh, and ultimately, you know, Texas Tech. Uh, mm -hmm. where you're assistant coach and a recruiting coordinator. Can you just walk us through that path? How, how do you go from, uh, you know, playing baseball to, you know, that spring, all of a sudden you're coaching high school baseball to, you know, several years later, you know, you're at the Division One level at Texas Tech. Well, I, one Saturday morning I was up in Encinitas. I was getting my car washed. Uh, and my uh, high school baseball coach, my senior, Craig Scoggins, who, by the way, is in the Aztec Hall of Fame as a wide receiver. He, he played there for Coach Coriel. Uh, he saw me. He was getting his car washed, and he came up to me and goes, hey, I, I heard uh, you can't play this spring because of your knee. Would you like to come out and coach? And I go, absolutely. So I coached with Coach Scoggins for three years, and, and we took our lumps that first year I was coaching. Uh, we had a bunch of sophomores, but we knew we had something really, really special there. And we, uh, the second year, we were close to five. I think we were at 500. And then the following year, the third year, all those sophomores grew up and we had a really, really good ball club. We got to the CIF playoffs. Uh, uh, we didn't, we got beaten the first round uh, by Granite Hills. We had a heck of a ball club that year. But uh, we had a bunch of guys on that team that uh, I think our first uh, uh, four out of our five guys in the uh, top of the lineup went on and played college baseball. Uh, and then, 
Uh, I ended up uh, getting offered a job at Miracosta by Coach Seeley. He actually was recruiting five of my players, and the only guy he got was me. <laughs> we had gone out to lunch, and, and all the kids got out of the car and, and went back up to uh, school. And he goes, hey, I want to talk to you for a minute. And I go, yeah, Coach, what, what about? He goes, well, I'd like you to come and be my assistant next year. And I go, well, what would I be coaching? He goes, well, you'll be coaching pitchers. And I go, well, I never coached pitchers before. He goes, well, you damn well better learn. <laughs> and uh, so I took the job last and here here's the great thing about John Seeley John Seeley anybody you talked he was a he, if you could play for him you could play for anybody okay he was the toughest guy uh, on and off the field I mean he he held you to a very high standard academically uh the way you treated people uh the way you treated your teammates the way you wore your uniform uh, if your shoes were shined I mean it, it was a tough program and some guys, you know, couldn't handle it. But the guys that love the game of baseball, uh, they, they did what they needed to. So anyways, I went up there, started coaching the pitching staff. I was, you know, 21 years old. Uh, you know, I'm coaching guys that are 18. We had a great staff that year, had a pretty good ball club. And then uh, every year, I was there for three years with Coach Seeley. And every year less, he gave me more and more responsibility. And I, I think uh, in the three years, there were five games where he was not present. Um, he was sick or, you know, something he couldn't make it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, less to this day and coach Seeley passed away many years ago. Uh, I don't think he was ever sick. I think he wanted to give me an opportunity to run the ball club and see how I would do. And in those five games, we were fortunate enough to win all five. We went five and zero with me running the show. And I think it was just, you know, he was bringing me along. He knew I had great passion for the game. He liked me when I played for him. Uh, even though he was tough on me. I mean, he, he was very, very tough on me, and he was tough on all of our guys. I mean, we could talk about John Seeley and tell stories about him for uh, a week and a half and, and then would probably forget a few and have to come back and talk more. I mean, legendary stories about this guy. Uh, but he taught me how to be a college baseball coach. And after three years, uh, I had a little bit of a problem with the athletic director at that time, and I chose to go to Southwestern. And uh, I quit Miracosta on a Thursday afternoon about 2.30. Southwestern hired me the next morning at 8 o'clock, and I worked one season with Jerry Bartow, who had a, a great run down there. And we had a marvelous ball club in 85. We won the conference title, won the uh, uh, league uh, tournament title, got to the state playoffs, got beat by San Bernardino. But we set all kinds of school records, most wins, most home runs. It was a great group of guys. And, then I was fortunate enough to uh, be uh, offered a job at Texas Tech uh, as a recruiting coordinator. And what's interesting about that was uh, the year before I went there in 85 when I was at Southwestern, they had uh, had their worst uh, year ever in school history. They had had their, the, the most losses in school history. So they bring me in to be the uh, assistant baseball coach, recruiting coordinator. And the one year I was there, we set the school record for wins. Uh, it's a long story, but uh, I'll make it short. Uh, the story was the athletic director and the head baseball coach were not on the same page. Uh, after the season was over, the head coach walks in the office, goes, shut the door. He goes, I just got fired. And here I am with a wife and two children Ugh. at that time, young children, uh, going, man, what, what does that mean for me? Well, what it meant for me was uh, I was the only guy rehired on the staff. Um, I got rehired, uh, went through the fall program, really didn't like the way things were going. 
And I decided to come back to San Diego, and then I accidentally got into the radio business. Yeah, well, I was going to transition into that. And I mean, you say accidentally, and I, I, I'm assuming you just kind of joking around there. But I mean, that's really, you know, again, as a young guy coming up in San Diego, uh, I mean, you know, we after Friday nights, we, we would sprint to the card, you know, to <laughs> hear Coach Contera talking about high school football because, you know, back in that day, that was the only way you could get your information was either the news or the newspaper, right, or uh, or the radio. And so, you know, talk to us about that transition a little bit, you know, going through, uh, you know, coming off of 17 years of coaching baseball and then all of a sudden, hey, now I'm in the radio business. Well, you know, I, I came back. And, uh, you know, I really didn't know where my, my life was going to go. I mean, I, I needed a job. Uh, we had a home in Solana Beach that was being rented out. So we were living with my mom and dad and, you know, a wife and, and two kids. And, you know, we came back at like late February, early March in 1987. And Orrin Freeman, who uh, was a great friend of mine in baseball, uh, he was working for the Yankees at that time. And he took me up to Los Angeles to meet with a uh, a uh, gentleman by the name of Bill Livesey from the Yankees. And, you know, at that time, there were no jobs. I mean, everybody was going to spring training. And so I didn't really know, you know, what was going to happen. I figured I was going to have to sit out, maybe do some substitute teaching uh, up in the San Diego Union High School District and, you know, do whatever I could to survive for a few months. And so I went up to Torrey Pines High School one day, and Frank Chambliss, who'd been my coach, uh, my uh, junior in high school, and had been an assistant one of those years I played at Maricosta, said, hey, why don't you come up to Carlsbad tomorrow? We're scrimmaging up there. So I went up there on a Wednesday, and about the third inning, Frank walks over to the chain-link fence and looks through and goes, hey, would you like to coach this year? And I go, yeah, but I can't come out here for five or $600. He goes, well, a guy wants to talk to you. I go, who's that? He goes, a guy named John Lynch. I go, what's he do? He goes, he owns 17 <laughs> radio stations. So I go, okay, well, give me his number, and I'll give him a call. So I, I gave John Lynch a call. I went over to his house on a Sunday. We worked out a deal that I'd work uh, at the radio station. Didn't have any idea less what I was going to do. He just said, show up at the radio station and we'll uh, figure this out. But we want you to take the first month off and uh, coach baseball at Torrey Pines. So, <laughs> so that's how I got in. Is John Lynch wanted me to coach baseball at Torrey Pines because his son, who's now the general manager of the 49ers, was a sophomore and he wanted me to coach Johnny. And so... Uh, you know, that was in 1987. Uh, they didn't have an all sports station then. They had, uh, it was called uh, 690 Extra Gold. Uh, the morning show was Irv Harrigan and Paul Bloom. And uh, that fall, uh, the following fall, I was there. I started in uh, March of 87, went on the actual payroll of uh, August of 87. And in September, I started going in on. Uh, Friday mornings with uh, Paul and Irv, and I'd talk about the top high school games, uh, you know, around the county. And then on Sundays, I would go out, uh, or during the week, I would go out and I would tape an interview with a high school coach and a high school player. And they would run it on the Charger uh, tailgate talk show because we had the Chargers uh, on the uh, oldie station. Okay, so I did that for one year, and I continued to work. And next thing you know, they got me coaching football at Torrey. They got me coaching basketball. <laughs> I was coaching four teams in three different sports uh, uh, within a year of coming back. And um, uh, what I was going to say, for, for 88, 89, I really didn't do a whole lot. I did some cable television, but I wasn't on the radio. But then in 1990, they decided to go to an all-sports station. And I had uh, quit coaching football after the 89 season, so I was available 
to do something football wise, either on Friday nights or Saturday morning. Well, we started the show in 1990 on Saturday morning and uh, Jim Rome, Randy Hahn, Brad Sesmet, those guys would be kind of the lead in guy for me for a couple of weeks. And then I took it over by myself. I'd never been on the radio except having been interviewed. Okay. So I went really well on the Saturday morning. So in 1991, we moved it to Friday night, 11 to one. And we did that for many, many years uh, on 690 and then 1090, uh, about a 25 year run, uh, you know, barking out those scores every uh, uh, Friday night. But uh, the thing that helped me, was uh, a couple of things. I had a couple of breaks along the way. Chet Forty, who worked with me and unfortunately mm -hmm. passed away in 1996, he was a big fan of mine. He really liked what I did, knew I knew sports, and he was always pushing to make sure I got more and more and more, and he enjoyed working with me, uh, even though I wasn't his regular partner. And then John Lynch, who owned the station, he was telling these guys, you got to get this guy up. This guy knows a lot about sports. And, you know, when, I, when John Lynch called me down to his office last, this is the honest to God's truth. He calls me in in like August of, of 1990 and goes, hey, we want to start a high school sports show on Saturday morning. I go, oh, that's great. He goes, we want you to be the host of it. And I go, well, I've never been on the radio uh, as a host. He goes, it's very easy. He goes, when the red light goes on, you talk. When the red light goes off, you, you, know, you get a drink of water, you go to the bathroom, you do whatever. And when that red light comes back on, you start talking again. Well, it's not that easy as he made it out to be. But that's how I got my start. Yeah, that that that's awesome. And I, I want to backtrack a little bit because you mentioned John Lynch there, um, or John Lynch Jr. Uh, you know, coaching him in, in at Torrey Pines. And, and and let's talk about some of the guys you've had the opportunity to coach. Obviously, you know, Lynch went on to a, a, a wonderful career at both Stanford and in the NFL. You know, now doing great things for the 49ers. But who are some of the other guys that you had an opportunity to coach that, you know, might be recognizable names to the audience? Well, you know, uh, Johnny, obviously, because he's in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But, you know, John was such a great guy to coach. I mean, he, he had great passion. He was a great competitor. He was a great teammate. Uh, you know, I and I also had the uh, uh, pleasure of coaching his brother. His brother, uh, uh graduated in 1993 and Ryan went on and pitched at UCLA and pitched about four years of professional baseball. Th those guys were a dream to coach. Um, I coached Chad Hutchinson, uh, mm -hmm. who, uh, you know, pitched one game in the big leagues and, you know, his career probably for me didn't go the way I had hoped. I, I thought Chad was a better baseball player than he was football player, but, you know, he ended up being a quarterback in the national football league with, with Dallas and the Chicago bears. Uh, he was a good hard nosed guy. His dad brought, uh, I had a baseball school left back uh, from 90 to 95, and uh, Lloyd Hutchinson, Chad's father, brought him and his brother Trevor down to my baseball school and said, hey, I want you to teach these guys how to pitch. And, uh, you know, I had Chad uh, working when he was in ninth grade. He was coming to my baseball uh, school. It was called Valley Baseball School and Softball Academy, and he'd take lessons for me. His brother Trevor, who was a couple of years behind him, uh, he'd take lessons, and then the following year, uh, the last year that I coached baseball at Torrey Pines was 93. Chad was a sophomore, and, uh, you know, after I left, he uh, he went on and he continued to get better and better and better, and, you know, like I said, I my, myself, I thought he was a better baseball player than he was a football player, but, you know, uh, uh, you know like, like me, I didn't know I'd be in the radio business. I think he probably thought he was going to pitch for years in the big leagues. He ended up being an NFL quarterback, and he's a great guy, and uh, 
was always a tough, hard-nosed competitor and a great teammate. And and it seemed at kind of that, you know, that six, seven years that Torrey Pines was kind of a, a pipeline to Stanford. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. the academics, uh, you know, but anything else, any other reason you might be able to put your thumb on that? Uh, you know, I, I just think that, uh, you know, Stanford was pretty aggressive. Uh, you know, Jack Elway was the one that started to recruit Johnny, and then uh, he ended up getting let go, and Dennis Green came in, and him and Willie Shaw recruited John, as did uh, Coach Mark was the baseball coach. And, you know, people forget that, you know, Johnny actually uh, was already playing professional baseball before he went back and played his senior year of football. If, uh, you know, Bill Walsh uh, wouldn't have taken over for Dennis Green, I'm not sure Johnny would have come back and played his senior year. He may have continued to throw baseballs in the Marlins organization. I mean, the baseball that he threw in his very first professional game is in the Baseball Hall of Fame because that was the very first uh, organized game by the Marlins before they had a big league ball club. Uh, Johnny threw the first pitch in Marlins organization uh, history. Oh, wow. That, that That's a... That's a fascinating fact that probably nobody knows about. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you another guy that uh, got a cup of coffee in the big leagues, and he kind of got frustrated and eventually retired, was a guy named Mike Humphreys, who's my center fielder uh, at Texas Tech. Mike was a tremendous player. He actually was in the Padre organization, and I, I guess I kind of take credit for him getting drafted. Uh, Bob Warner uh, uh, was a scout here in San Diego, great coach at Hoover High School, and Bob came out one night when Texas Tech was uh, playing, and I went down to the game. I'd left there, you know, a couple of years earlier, and I wanted to go down and see some of my old uh, uh, players. And Mike was still playing there, and I told Bob uh, about him. I go, man, this guy can really play. And he had a big night against Jim Dietz and the Aztecs that night. And uh, his high school coach was also a, a Padre scout, Benny Jones from DeSoto, Texas. And Benny got credit for drafting Mike, but. I think Bob Warner had a lot to do with it because he had the year of Jack McKeon, and uh, Mike was going through the, the system really well. He'd been a double-A all-star, and then the Padres decided to trade him to uh, the New York Yankees for an outfielder by the name of Oscar Azokar. In those days, uh, players were going up and down from Columbus, and Mike kind of got tired of going from AAA to the big leagues back and forth on that trolley and decided to retire. But he was a tremendous, talented ball player that I had at Tech. Coach, let's shift gears a little bit because you decided to, to, well, I don't know if you decided, but the decision was made that in you know 2010, you, you kind of walk away from radio, you could say, and, and decide to take on the role as GM of the San Diego Soccers. Uh, and again, I mean, I mean, if you grew up in the late 80s or mid 80s mm-hmm. going to soccer's games, you knew all about Julie V and, you know, those the, the San Diego sports arena was the place to be at that, mm-hmm. that you know, that time. I mean, we had season tickets as a kid and, uh, you know, my dad being Hungarian, uh, Julie, <laughs> v being, be, Julie V being Hungarian. I mean, that, um, you know, naturally became our, our family's favorite player. But uh, take us through that transition. What what led you to that? And, you know, what was that experience like for you for there for six or so years? Well, let, 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 me, let me explain here a couple things. I actually left radio in 2015 after the Padres season when I was at 1090. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll, I'm going to go back and, and tell you why I took the soccer's uh, job. Uh, in 2009, I was working way too much. I, I, was, I was at 1090, and I was just working way too much. I was doing 17 radio shows a week. Wow. I mean, that's insane. Uh, wow. I mean, I was doing a, a two-hour talk show from the ballpark. I was doing the pre- and post-game show. Uh, Bob Scanlon and I were doing a show on Saturday mornings. 
Uh, so, you know, Monday through Friday, I was do- I did 15 shows on Saturday. I did the World Baseball Network with Bobby for two hours, and then I uh, would do the uh, Padre pregame show, and then I, you know, I had the rest of the weekend off. But, you know, I wasn't taking good care of myself. I wasn't getting rest, and anybody that knows me knows the way I prepare. I mean, I can be on the air for, for three hours, but I'm preparing for five or six or however many hours I need to prepare. And I was coming home from the ballpark at 1 in the morning. I was staying up till 2, 3 you know, getting ready for the next day's show. I mean, it was insane. Well, anyways, I have a heart attack two days to go in the 2009 baseball season. And at that point in time, uh, I didn't know if I'd ever come back to radio. Uh, I was out about five weeks. I I could have come back probably after about two, but mentally, I, I just wasn't ready. I just wasn't ready. And when I did come back, I came back with a different attitude. I had lost a couple of my my friends at the radio station had been let go and I thought they were let go unfairly. And that kind of led into, you know, some uh, anger that I probably uh, kept bottled up. But then uh, one night I was on the radio and uh, I had said, uh, you know, I, I always want to be a GM. You know, I try to be the Padres GM every day now, 12 to 3. <laughs> you know, I, I love baseball and I want our team to win. And, you know, I'm going to try to do whatever I can to help the ball club, even though I'm a radio broadcaster. But, um, I said on the air, I go, boy, if I was ever a, a general manager, you know, I'd like to do this, this, and this. Well, the following fall, I went out, and the soccers had come back. And I, I went out and took the family. They were playing at the Del Mar Arena. We went out and watched them. And, you know, I, I'll be honest with you, I was a little surprised. That it was a little bit better quality soccer than I anticipated. I, I remember the days of Julie V and Brian Quinn and Jacques Lattesur and Victor oh. Noguer and all those guys. Oh, and, man. by the way, Julie V is one hell of a guy, as is Brian Quinn. I know those guys very well now from my association with the soccers. But, um, so we went out, and then we went out to another game. And I ran into a guy named Dave Pike, who's one of the owners. And I told Dave, I go, you know, I got some ideas how maybe you guys can get a few more fans in here. Because, you know, you're not going to have a team if you don't uh, get fans in. Uh, and so, uh, I don't know, months go by. And I get a phone call and, uh, from a, a lady by the name of Melissa. She goes, hey, could you come up and talk to the owners of the soccer? I go, sure, I'll come up. So I wrote down a bunch of notes and went up there. And I took my little... Uh, uh, binder up there, and I open it up. I start rattling off a bunch of stuff I think they should do. And Phil Salvaggio, who was the general manager, one of the owners, and today is the head coach, he stops the meeting about five minutes in. He goes, well, all these ideas sound pretty good, but we want to talk to you about being the general manager. I started laughing. <laughs> I started laughing, Les. And uh, I go, I'm not quitting my job. They go, well, you don't, we don't think you need to quit your job. Well, Anybody that knows me knows I'm going to die full. If I'm going to take on some, we're going to we're going to try to win. And so I, I took about five weeks. Uh, I thought I go. I need some time. I'm coming off a heart attack, and a lot of people thought I needed to have my head examined. Why? Why is this guy <laughs> that was working too much, who had a heart attack, now is going to become a general manager of a professional franchise and still do a five night a week talk show? Well, I'm going to tell you why. And I think it's the same reason John took the 49er job five years ago. We needed, we needed to be around players. We needed to be around that scoreboard. We needed to have a, a, a tally at the end of the night on how we were doing. So I took the job, and we were very fortunate. In the six years there, we won. We qualified for the playoffs all six years. We won five division titles. We won three championship rings. 
uh, had a 48-game winning streak, which is uh, in sports history, uh, minor, major league in the United States. It's uh, the most consecutive wins of any sports team in any sport in the history of the United States, uh, uh, minor or major leagues. Okay, I know the Lakers wow. won 33 uh, in basketball in the NBA. That, that's uh, the major sports, but the soccer's right now. And we were part of it, 48 consecutive victories, which, you know, is amazing. We went 108 and 22 in my six years there. Had a great time. Uh, but less, I had three goals when I took that job. One was to win a league championship and get a championship ring. I got three of them. Uh, the other was I wanted to get the uh, soccers out of the Del Mar Arena and back to where they belonged at the sports arena. And between myself and Ernie Hahn, we were able to make that happen after my second year with the Sockers. And the third was I wanted to make sure that financially the Sockers were in good shape to where they wouldn't go away like they had a couple of other times. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're going strong. They're having a great season right now. Real proud of that franchise. And hopefully they can keep it going for years because indoor soccer is a lot of fun. Oh, it's 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 an absolute blast. I mean, you you go back to the again those Julie V. Brian Quinn days. I mean, you know, again the Dallas the the, the sidekicks. I mean, they the just couldn't stand those guys. You know, oh, I mean, no, was, tattoo boy. Uh, oh I got to boy, know tattoo. He came back and coached the Dallas sidekicks, and you know uh, we were fortunate enough to beat him uh, when I was with the soccer. But he's actually off the off the. Uh, uh, turf, he's a pretty good guy. <laughs> well, most of those guys are, right? I mean, it's just, you, you got to get your mind right for the competition. So. Well, I know one thing, those guys can all drink beer a lot better than I can. <laughs> That's awesome. So, Coach, you, know, you're, you talked about the Padres there and your involvement with the Padres, the pregame, the postgame show. And, and, you know, the Padres, again, you know, I, I go back to this, you know, we're both San, native San Diegans and, you know, the, the love for the Padres runs deep. And, you know, the last couple of seasons, they, they've had a little, been a little up and down. And, uh, you know, what, what do you think it's going to take to get those guys over the hump? Well, I think uh, bringing in Bob Melvin, Les, uh, I think this is a brilliant hire. And, uh, you know, he's a great man, uh, outstanding uh, baseball man, but he's a people person. Uh, he gets it all the way around. He understands how to uh, develop ball players. He knows how to relate to ball players. He knows how to, uh, you know, get on ball players if they needed to be get on. But he also understands the other parts of the game that I think uh, are very important. I mean, I think the dealing with the media is very, very important. I think he gets that. He understands uh, he's the conduit. Uh, from the organization to the fans, and 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 I think we're gonna we're gonna see him do a lot of good things on the field, off the field. Uh, I I, don't, I can't talk a lot about this coaching staff because I've not had the opportunity to talk to any of the coaches. Uh, you know, this COVID thing has really kind of thrown a monkey wrench into a lot of things the last few years. But you know, I, I thought you know Andy Green's a good guy, but Andy, you know, I, I think was. Uh, very frustrated after a while. I think first couple of years, you know, he was, he was trying to figure it out. And I think after a while he got very frustrated. I think Jace Tangler just wasn't cut out uh, at this point in time of his baseball life to be a major league manager. I think he'll learn a lot uh, working as a bench coach there in Minnesota. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, being able to, to get Bob Melvin to me, he's a, a little bit younger version of Bruce Bochy. 
And I, I think he's going to do a good job of handling the pitching staff, uh, handling the bullpen, which was real key. And that was, you know, I think uh, Bruce Bochy, uh, you know, I, I look at Boch and I know how Boch handled players uh, uh, on good days. And if he had to bring a ball player in and talk to him, I was around a lot with him and Kevin Towers back in the day. Uh, but Boch, there's nobody better to handle in a pitching staff than Bruce Bochy. And I think Bob Melvin has a lot of the similarities. Hey, and it- and I'm glad you bring that up. Somebody else actually mentioned that younger version of Bochi to me when the hire was made. And I just think it's really intriguing that they're able to pull him not only, you know, from a managerial job, but, you know, a job here in California. And I think, I'm with you. I think that it's a fantastic hire uh, for the Padres. Uh, but I wanted to, and I'm going to bounce around here a little bit, Coach, and please forgive me for this because the ideas and things that I want to talk to you about just pop into my mind. And I want to talk about the 96 and 98 years in the city of San Diego, right? I mean, you get a World Series uh, and you get a team that goes to the Super Bowl. Yeah, Which one to you, in your opinion, do you think meant more for the city? Uh, I think probably the, the Super Bowl when they went in, uh, uh, you know, the 94 season, 95 Super Bowl. I, I think that, you know, unless I – uh, I was doing the post-game Charger talk show, and I remember I was at the uh, Marriott Hotel in La Jolla, and I had to go down to Fifth Avenue for the post-game show. And I remember I was driving an Aerostar van, and there's people on Market Street. You know Market Street hasn't always been the the, the oh, greatest yeah. street to, to drive down, okay? Oh, so I'm yeah. hauling butt after they beat Pittsburgh, and I'm going down Market Street, and I got people standing in the middle of the street as I'm driving my big Aerostar down the road. <laughs> And they're high-fiving me as I'm going down the street. I, I go to, uh, it was called uh, 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 Brewski's. I think it was uh, yeah, yeah. Brewski's uh, uh, place right there on the corner of uh, uh, Fifth Avenue. And me and Genius Alaska are doing the post-game show, and I'm trying to give out the stats for Stan Humphreys and uh, Natron Means and, and, and the offensive players. And I got these two beautiful girls with their butts right in my face uh, dancing on the table that I'm broadcasting from. <laughs> So that gets over. I come back to Solana Beach. I uh, get cleaned up, and I head back to the stadium. And what I saw at the stadium on that Sunday night, I hope uh, someday to see it, maybe with the Padres at Petco Park when they come back from you know, uh, winning a, a National League championship heading to the World Series. Uh, they said there were 75,000 at the stadium. That, that, that's not right. It was well over 85,000. And to be able to, to broadcast from the stadium that night, be down on the field, um, you know, when the Chargers walked through that tunnel in right field, yeah. uh, I'll never forget it. I mean, that uh, I know it wasn't a game, but it, it was because of a game earlier that day. Uh, this city was just absolutely electric. Coach, I, I lived up the street from the Murph at the time, and me and about five buddies walked down the street because it was literally a 10-minute walk. Had no idea what to expect when we got to the stadium, and I'm getting goosebumps just talking about it. It was... You know, we, I was there for that squish the fish game, you know, against Miami. Right. That was as electric as I've ever, ever seen the Murph. Uh, would you agree? Oh, no question. And, you know, uh, it was Chris Ello and I and John Chelesnick. We were on that night until midnight. And I actually was down on the field when the Chargers came back. And uh, kind of a, a funny story. Well, it wouldn't have been funny if I wouldn't have caught it, but. Uh, <sighs> They, they had the AFC championship trophy and Pat Kern at that time was the traveling secretary. And he also was one of the color analysts with Lee Hamilton and Jim Laszlovic on the broadcast. 
And so Bobby Ross gets up on the stage down on the field, and everybody's yelling, where's the trophy? Where's the trophy? Well, Pat Curran comes running with a trophy. Well, all the players had come in, and they had their travel bags. And Pat Curran tripped over Stanley Richard, their safety's travel bag. <laughs> and as he's fallen, the, the trophy is going right for my forehead. Oh. And luckily, I catch it right before it uh, would have probably split my head open. Uh, and then I would have been a story. But I catch it. <laughs> Right as it's about ready to hit me in the forehead, I take it, I hand it up to the podium, and they give it to Bobby Ross. But, you know, a lot of people didn't see it because there were so many people on the field. But these bags were all over, and people were tripping on him. And Pat Curran was all excited. He comes running and trips. And, man, it almost hit me right in the forehead, that big AFC championship trophy. <laughs> the sheriff trying to make one last play, right? Exactly. <laughs> the sheriff, Stanley that, that That's awesome. So, Coach, let, let, let's hop back into the radio, you know, well, radio, coaching, you know, the GM, I mean, you don't spend as much time as you have in sports and, and not come across some characters. And, you know, you mentioned Chet Forty there and, you know, the Loose Cannons was, was you know, one of my favorite shows uh, back in the day on, on 690. Um, who are some of the kind of the the characters that you've come across, right? I mean, Chet Forty was a personality unto himself, you know, coming from Philadelphia, making his way into San Diego. And I mean, he fit right in, right? He kind of brought that, that Philly street smart sort of attitude to San Diego, which, which was refreshing at the time I, I felt. And uh, you know, but you've had the opportunity to meet, talk to, interview, hang out with, you know, athletes, celebrities, whom, whatever they may be titled, you know, in your opinion, who are some of the most memorable, you know, exchanges you've had with? Well, you know, as far as guys I work with, uh, Chet was fantastic. I mean, Chet, I think a lot of people know his story. Uh, you know, he was a producer of Monday Night Football, and, uh, you know, he gambled uh, away uh, a big part of his life. And he'd come to San Diego. Uh, John Lynch gave him an opportunity uh, to kind of get uh, get rolling again, and him and his wife and daughter Jacqueline came out here. And, uh, you know, really, uh, was really in, enjoying life. And uh, Chet and I became really good friends outside the radio station, too, Les. We, uh, our daughters were in the same uh, class at Torrey Pines. They graduated in 97. And so, you know, Jacqueline and Brooke, uh, they were friends. Uh, I used to go pick Chet up and we'd go up and watch basketball games. You know, he was uh, the 1957 College Basketball Player of the Year at Columbia. Uh, he loved basketball. And so we'd go up there on a Tuesday night or Wednesday night, maybe even a Friday night, and watch a, a ball game together. And unfortunately, he passed away uh, in 1996. Uh, you know, the, and I agree. That that was probably my favorite show, too, The Loose Cannons. So I was on that show a lot. I mean, I used to come in every Friday and, and uh, visit with them. We'd go out to breakfast on Friday mornings, me and Steve, down at – uh, Perry's Cafe right down the street from 690. Uh, and those guys were my close guys. Uh, Lee Hamilton, of course, uh, who was a fixture in sports talk radio in Southern California. I worked with Lee for over 25 years. And, you know, uh, he, uh, you know, he, uh, he uh, did a lot of good things in this business and gave a lot of us an opportunity uh, over the years to, to be successful. And uh, 690 was a really, really special time. And, uh, you know, the people that made the decision to break up 690, um, you know, shame on them because, uh, you know, for five years we were kicking the hell out of that station in L.A. And, and, and killing them in the ratings. And they decided to get rid of all of us. And after they uh, got rid of all of us, uh, the station up there in L.A. lasted six months. So uh, that, that broke up uh, uh, probably the greatest radio station sports wise in the history of Southern California. 
Yeah, it, it was a, a law as a sports fan. Uh, it was certainly a bit a big hit. And 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 coach, one last thing, and and I'd be remiss if I if I didn't ask you. Uh, your opinion on this, you know, having spent so much time around the game and, you know, as a coach, as a broadcaster, you know, the Hall of Fame voting, uh, you know, it's really touchy-feely, right? I mean, there are people that feel, hey, you know, these guys cheated. There are people who feel that, who, you know, who cares what they do off the field? It's about the performance on the field. I'd love to get your opinion because to me, personally, you know, again, coming up watching these guys, it, it seems... Uh, a, you know, a travesty that a guy like Barry Bonds or Roger Clemens uh, and the like aren't in the Hall of Fame. And I just would love to hear your opinion on it. Well, my, my opinion on it is I think those guys uh, have served their uh, penance. Uh, I think Clemens and Bonds both uh, should be in the Hall of Fame. And, you know, unless that, that's a big turnaround for me. I'm not a big Barry Bonds fan. I, I don't think Bonds is a good guy. Uh, I don't think he was a good teammate. I think he was very selfish. Uh, but he's one of the great players in the history of baseball. And, and Clements, I think, uh, also. Uh, I would also say this, and, you know, I guess as you get older, you look at things a little bit different. Uh, if they can put Bud Selig in, mm-hmm. and Bud Selig was the commissioner during the PED era, and, and you can't tell me that he and his forces didn't know what was going on. Uh, they knew what was going on. The owners knew what was going on. But they continue to go to the bank and cash checks and put money in their bank account. I think these guys have uh, served their penance long enough. I think they should uh, be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, I was disappointed yesterday. Not that they didn't get in. And, you know, they'll maybe get in on the ERA committee, the old Veterans Committee. I was surprised only one guy got in yesterday. You know, I, as soon as my show got over, I turned on the MLB Network. I was like a little kid. You know, I, I'm sitting there uh, waiting uh, for the announcement and, and Josh Rowich. Uh, and Brian Kenny are there. Rowich goes, well, we got one new member of the Hall of Fame, and it's David Ortiz. And I think Big Poppy obviously is a Hall of Famer, mm-hmm. but I was just shocked. I-, I was shocked that there was only one guy that went in yesterday. Uh, but I think those guys probably should get in. Um, and then, you know, if they get in, what do you do with Shoeless Joe Jackson and Pete Rose? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I- absolutely. I mean, it, they the, the character – Clause, I, I guess, is, is best way to describe it. Uh, that voters are, you know, told to account for. I think is uh, is is outdated, quite honestly. I mean, you have guys in, you know, there, I read an article yesterday with the the spitballer, right? I mean, and when it was outlawed, guys that already threw it before that, you know, were were grandfathered in, and, and here you have a Hall of Famer whose plaque says the greatest spitball pitcher ever. Uh, yeah. You know, so it's like, <laughs> I mean, it seems contradictory, right? Well, contradictory, but, you know, back in the day, uh, you know, guys did a lot of things. And, of course, they didn't change out baseballs after every uh, every time a ball was hit <laughs> in the air or on the ground or, uh, you know, fouled off at home play. They, I mean, uh, and what cracks me up, to be honest with you, nowadays is a catcher, the ball will hit the ground and the catcher will throw the ball out. I wouldn't throw it out until the umpire makes me throw it out because if you got a pitcher out there, maybe these guys don't know how to use a scuff ball uh, mm-hmm. to their benefit now. Uh, a little bit different game, but you know, in the old days, uh, you wanted to have a little bit of a scuff ball to make that thing dip and move a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Coach, again, I can't thank you for honoring me with with coming on the podcast. This, as a guy, I mentioned this several times, that came up in San Diego. It, it, this has been a treat for me to have you on the podcast, and I can't thank you enough for joining me. 
Oh, Les, uh, hey, anytime, and uh, uh, you and your staff continue to do all the, the great things you're doing out there. You guys are helping a lot of youngsters uh, by uh, going out there, covering them, writing about them, talking about them. Uh, uh, believe me, uh, you probably don't get a pat on the back here and there, but a guy that lives and breathes baseball and uh, wants to see a lot of these young kids uh, live out their dreams, you and your staff are doing a hell of a job. Uh, that means so much coming from you, Coach. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I'd like to thank the coach, John Cantera, for joining me on the podcast today. Be sure to check out PrepBaseballReport.com for all your news, rankings, and event information. And until next time, we'll see you at the yard.